Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jack Truong. Hope you're doing well during this pandemic season. I'm recording this on a Friday, day after Thanksgiving, the year 2020. And yes, the year 2020 is still here. Can't believe it. Anyway... Uh, this particular podcast is I based on a couple of students, at least, who have reached out to me. One is one of my current students taking one of my classes. Another one is just some random guy from Austin, Texas, wanted to know uh, and get some information about, you know, becoming a psych major, graduating with a degree in psychology, pursuing careers in psychology. And specifically, they want to know, what my personal experience was going through this process. So that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, I can and will address, and it's, I don't want this to be some sort of how-to or necessarily uh, what you should do to pursue a degree in psychology, but mostly uh, talking about my own perspective because that's all I can do at this moment, right? So that's part of the backstory. Uh, I have requests from 
a few students to be their mentor and guiding them through this process, and I'm certainly open to that. Though you should have more than one mentor in the field to help guide you throughout your uh, academic and future career uh, search. Um, so again, my doctorate degree is in counseling psychology, so my PhD is in that field. Although I started my PhD degree in social psychology, so if you look up uh, who is Dr. C, an older podcast, I think I went through a lot of that, all of those steps that I've taken. So this one is really focused on the uh, academic steps, and and keep in mind that I graduated with my undergraduate degree in 1989, right, and I started graduate school in 1990. So I'm sure a lot of things have changed in terms of the selection process and, and so forth, but I think a lot of things have not changed. So hopefully you can still benefit from what I went through and maybe learn from a lot of my mistakes. So I don't live life with regrets in that sense, but maybe if I had a do-over, then maybe we can all benefit from that kind of having gone through that experience okay all right so keep all that in mind as we go through this step by step uh, once I graduated high school I went straight to the University of Texas so that's a four-year university and I started as a electrical engineering major now I think I, I did cover this a little bit but I finished with a doc uh, sorry a bachelor's degree in psychology that's a four-year degree and so I skipped the whole community college experience, which if I had a do-over, I definitely would have done that. And that's what my daughter is doing right now. She's in her third semester at a community college in Texas as we're speaking, getting these basic courses out of the way. And these courses should transfer to a four-year university if that's her choice. Um, and then she would enter probably as a junior in that four-year university and then have a couple years to finish with a bachelor's degree okay so usually a psychology degree is a bachelor's of arts in some schools maybe it's a bachelor's of science it just depends on each university so there's a lot of variability here okay so nothing that I'm gonna say today about my own experience or about getting a psychology degree is gonna be universal it's gonna depend on where you are and I know I have a lot of listeners outside of the United States so this process might be different if you're going to school at a university in Singapore or in Norway or whatnot. I'm projecting. I, those are some places I want my daughter to look into. <laughs> and she's not going to listen to my podcast. All right. So when I majored in psychology as an undergraduate student, I didn't really have a clear sense of which field I wanted to go into. Um, there are few direct jobs related to psychology with a bachelor's degree that one could do. For example, chemical dependency counseling. Um, you can get a certificate or a license. I believe in Texas they're called LCDCs. They may have changed the name. Again, I'm going by, and I'm out, out of the field of clinical, out of this clinical world for many years. Okay, I'm an academic uh, teaching undergraduate psych classes, right? I, I veered off from that clinical route of treating patients to the education route. So uh, do your research. A lot of my information might be slightly outdated when it comes to the, the names of these degrees. But fundamentally, with a bachelor's degree uh, and, and possibly with an associate's, you can do chemical dependency counseling. 
right? Or in a psychiatric hospital, this is one of my part-time jobs before grad school was to work as a, what's called a psych tech in a psychiatric hospital. So you assist the psychiatrist and the psychologist within that kind of mental uh, health clinic or hospital and you assist with patients, right? But your training is pretty rudimentary. You're not really doing counseling. Um, uh, you're just assisting with whatever patients need. Not so much as like a nurse would do. They focus more on the medical side. So you just have these general duties of, um, you know, keeping patients company, um, understand what the goals are for each patient, and assisting with that, okay? So it's not exactly um, the type of job someone would definitely make a long-term career out of. It's probably more of a stepping stone. I mean, someone probably could if they enjoyed that work, right? Uh, my experience way back when was uh, during uh, the nine months before my graduate school started, I worked at an institution in Fort Worth, Texas. And it happened to be a juvenile um, department within this, what's called a state school, which is, and, and these young kids basically committed crimes, but instead of going to a juvenile facility, they happened to have a mental illness diagnosis, right? So they're separated. And they have dorm rooms, and it's 24 hours, but it's a locked unit. Locked unit in the sense that it's for their own safety, uh, but also they've committed minor crimes, so uh, it's difficult to describe what kind of environment that is. But um, but these are kids basically that shouldn't didn't belong in, a, say, a regular juvenile detention facility or even prison. Um, and so they had a wide variety of mental illness diagnoses. Some were diagnosed with mental retardation. Um, others may have mild forms of, say, psychotic disorders, okay? Um, but they, in a sense, that was their housing unit, okay? That was their, it was a residence. It wasn't an outpatient, but it was an inpatient. So every patient had a roommate and so forth, okay? Um, now, what can you do with a bachelor's degree in psychology? Um, even if you're not pursuing a career in psychology, a psych, being a psych major is a, fairly decent, well-rounded degree because you have experience in the liberal arts as well as some science background. It's not the best field, say, if you want to go to medical school. Um, you, there are more pre-med requirements in terms of biology and chemistry that's involved. But certainly, if you if you meet those requirements and graduate with a psych degree, that's not a bad thing. Um, it could be a good pre-law degree, for example, um, or going to law enforcement. Um, so that's not, it's a, it's a well-rounded degree, but for most students, a degree in psychology really is a stepping stone for those who are psych majors to move on to the next level, especially if their goal is to become either a researcher, uh, to work in business as a consultant, to work in a human resources department, or to work in a hospital or private practice setting treating patients or clients. You, you, you want to get that master's degree, and that's the next step, okay? And um, so typically as an undergraduate, let's say if you have an interest in being a clinician, working with patients, 
you can certainly volunteer, and this is what I did. I volunteered at a, the local state hospital. And, um, oh, I don't know if I've shared this story in any of my podcasts, but I remember as an undergrad, you don't really do much. You just sort of hang out with the patients, okay, as a volunteer, keep them company. And I remember I was outside the playground shooting basketball hoops with a particular patient. Um, let me call him uh, Patient uh, I, okay? like the letter I. And so we're shooting hoops, and he's a, he's a young man, African-American, and, and uh, we got along really well. And then when I had left that volunteer experience, I graduated, and that was in Austin. I came back to Arlington, Texas, where uh, my family lives, uh, my parents, and then um, you know commuted to Fort Worth to work at that state school. And I remember we had an outing where we were all in a van and going to, I think, like a YMCA to do some indoor activities, you know. So we took these uh, teenagers out with us. And I think I was driving the van. I'm really having a hard time remember. But in the passenger seat, there's a young man who's a patient. And I just had com casual conversation. I realized that most of these teenage patients here... Uh, didn't really know any Asian Americans firsthand, right? So, so it was intriguing to them as as young people to be around an Asian person, basically. So I had a lot of nicknames like Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, okay, all these kinds of things, which I didn't take as derogatory. That was just sort of, <laughs> that was the, you know, their mental state at the time is that's how they saw me, right, uh, as that kind of person. So uh, one of the young men in the van, and I, and I asked everyone, hey, I'm not the only Asian person you've met before, right? And most of them said, yeah, you kind of are. And then one person said, no, I actually knew someone when uh, I was in a hospital, and we used to shoot hoops at the playground at the hospital. And I asked him, wait a minute. You're not talking about Austin State Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this, there was this guy. He was really cool, and we shot. You know, we got along really well. I said, I said, man, that was me. <laughs> so I'm still the only Asian American person you've ever met. Uh, in any case, that's just a side story. And so, as an undergraduate, I think volunteering at either a VA hospital or any kind of psychiatric clinic, state hospital, I think is a well worth. It's a worthwhile endeavor. Um, it's really a good experience. You might get a good letter of recommendation out of it from your supervisor. And you get to meet patients with different... And it really demystifies a lot of these mental illnesses that you only read about in textbooks. And you read about, you know, what psychotic symptoms are. And you're wondering, wow, what's that like in real life? And you get to, you get to learn that. And... Um, I'll talk a little bit more about my experiences as a volunteer and also as a trainee during my clinical experience when I do the podcast related to the chapters on um, clinical and counseling and, and psychiatric disorders, okay? So I'll save some of those examples and anecdotes for them. But uh, basically, it was well worthwhile. So that was my undergraduate experience. I took as many psych courses in, as I could. My psychology GPA was really high. I think I only made one B and the rest were A's. It was like a 3.9 or something. My overall GPA, because I started as an electrical engineering major, and then, you know, my second year I really did poorly in some classes, so it really dropped my GPA. 
So I ended up with a 3.3, I think, overall, 3.2. And my SAT scores were not even through the roof. Okay, it's just a slightly above average, right? So the fact that I got into a PhD program, actually I got into two PhD programs because I switched majors technically at some point. You know, don't over, don't go overboard on shooting for that 4.0. You know, that, that doesn't mean everything, Okay. When I was a doctoral student, I was on the committee, selection committee for incoming graduate students. So a few graduate students can work with the faculty as a team during these interviews. So we evaluated these applications, sorted them, ranked them, right? There was a system at the university for ranking them, and then we send out invitations for interviews. And I realized that it was an intriguing process because just because someone had a 4.0, we, we rejected some people with excellent academic grades. It's not all about the grades, people, okay? It has to do with your character. It has to do with uh, whether during an in-person interview is, well, is this someone we'll enjoy working with for the next four to five years in grad school, right? So is this person dependable? Is this person fairly honest? <laughs> okay. I mean, those, those kinds of traits. And, and so a, lo a lot of it has to do with your life experience. It's not just about padding your resume, but it's getting a sense of who you are besides the grades. Okay. When it comes to GPA, everyone's going to be pretty competitive, right? Sure. Someone's going to be slightly lower. Others, letters of recommendation weigh a lot. Okay. Um, because we actually admitted a student who had a lower GPA than average, and some schools will have a minimum level that you have to reach in order to qualify to be, you know, to, to have your application accepted. But this student had glowing recommendations. You know, there was in their personal essay they explained why the grade, grades were the the way they were. Okay, and so. So that person was all right, accepted by the so, program. Okay. Oh, so man. in general, during your undergraduate years, the goal is to do well in your courses in your major, get to know some of the professors um, by either volunteering as research assistants, or in some cases you may be paid to be a research assistant because university professors have research requirements for themselves. Right, so their teaching responsibilities are balanced with research, and and for many of them, their research takes up more time than their teaching. Okay, so that's why a lot of graduate students end up teaching. Um, so as an undergraduate student, that's a really good experience and uh, to put on your resume. But it also serves another purpose: is that if you do well and you're very responsible and show promise, then that professor would be a great person to write. A recommendation letter. So you want to find three individuals, at least during your undergraduate years, that you foster that kind of work relationship. So just sitting in the back of a class, making an A in the class, never speaking to the instructor before or after class, and then suddenly you approach them to ask for a recommendation, chances are they may say, no, I don't really know you very well. And this is especially a challenge now with so many online classes and so it is okay as a student to just email your instructor to strike up a conversation and talk about some things, you know, in terms of questions about careers and all that, getting advice, right? Then you have a converse, established conversation going, uh, 
And if you need to, to get a recommendation letter from that instructor, they're much more likely to write one for you than if you didn't have any correspondence, okay? Because I, I basically, from my perspective, I turn students down when I don't feel like I know them very well, right? This was either before or after teaching online, right? So as a student, you have to make the legwork, make the effort to get to know the instructor, to be able to speak with them so they get a sense of who you are. All right, so let's assume that you are a psych major, you're determined to go to the next level, so you're going to apply to a master's program. Now, in, I'm going to focus more on the clinician part of it, okay, the clinical part of it. If you are wanting to pursue a PhD in psychology, right, um, Clinical psychology is going to be under the umbrella of the psychology department. I know that sounds like a no-brainer, but counseling psychology departments are often under a different umbrella, under a different uh, school within the university called educational psychology, right, which is under Department of Education, okay? So if you're seeking a master's degree, you're more likely to find that in a counseling psych department where they have what's called a terminal master's, where you're applying and you know that from start to finish, you're going to leave with a master's degree. Whereas in many psychology departments, not just clinical, but social, developmental, industrial, organizational, these programs, you can actually enter with a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree, and you're entering into a PhD program where you're expected to do and in in earn the credentials of a master's degree along the way. So it's not a terminal master's program. It, it sort of can be if you decide to quit the program after finishing your master's degree requirements, but it wasn't designed to be that way. So they may have, and again, I'm, I'm sort of out of the loop these days, but it's possible that you can choose to get a master's in clinical psych when you enter. But most of the time, my experience, my understanding is that you enter into a PhD program and work on your master's along the way. Now in those programs, if you already have your master's and you're seeking a doctorate degree, right, a PhD, then definitely all of these programs will accept that. In fact, under the counseling psychology programs that I know, the PhD and the master's program are separated. They're two different programs. So you're expected to finish and get your master's, then reapply to the PhD program, right? So the PhD program expects you to have a master's degree in that field first. Whereas clinical psychology, if you're pursuing a PhD, you could be a fresh graduate with a bachelor's degree and enter into those, those programs. Right? I think that's a real difficult choice because for a relatively young person, assuming on average, who's just finished their undergraduate degree, to make that kind of commitment to a PhD program, which can run between six and ten years, depending, that's a really big commitment. So I think if you're not sure if you really need the PhD, if you're goal is to be a clinician, to have a private practice or to work in a hospital and do counseling, then a master's degree really is sufficient for that. 
And then you can always decide to go back to school if for some reason you feel the need to have a PhD, right? Um, I don't think a doctorate program will make you a better therapist, for example, um, unless you go to a school that specializes in a form of therapy that you want to learn more of and become more of a specialist, then yes, of course, that would help you uh, for sure. But if you're doing general counseling, personal counseling, psychological counseling, then um, you can still specialize, but a master's degree is what you need to get your foot in the door in those career fields. Okay. Um, now, let's say you want to do something different other than clinical. You want to be a, uh, let's say, a community college instructor like myself to work to teach in the psychology department. Then the most efficient route for you is to get your bachelor's in psychology, then get your master's degree in psych, where your major is basically what's called a general psychology degree, right? So you're not training to be a clinician, you're not focused on social or any of these areas that you can you're basically learning a, the basics of psychology right and that's a good foundation to jumping into a community college uh, teaching role right so if I knew I was going to be a community college instructor as a profession I could have saved many many years and a lot of money and not have student loan debt like likely or have it paid off by now at my age but in a way, I don't regret my circular route in terms of where I ended up because I learned a lot through the graduate school years. And those three years of clinical experience, I don't regret at all. Those experiences will be embedded in my mind for the rest of my life in terms of the patients that I've worked with and hopefully helped during the brief time that I was in my training years, right? And so that that's just my own thing. But again, it... You want to work backwards. You want to think about the career field you want to be in, find people who are working in those career fields, and then reverse engineer, find out what the best steps are to get there. For example, if you want to be a therapist, um, a master's degree in psychology is not the only degree out there. You can get a master's degree in social work. Then when you're licensed, you become an LMSW, right? Or a clinical social worker, a CSW. And what that allows you to do is similar to a master's degree in psychology where you get an LPC, Licensed Professional Counselor, or you become an LMFT, a Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, right? So in each of these cases, you would have to have a state licensing exam, right? And then, uh, and also a, super, a lot of supervision with regards to your training hours, your clinical hours, okay? And then you can become... An independent practitioner you can create your own business or work within a hospital setting um, now the reason I mentioned social work because that's the degree my wife had and what she did was for her bachelor's degree she went to a school that offered a BSW program so her bachelor's major was social work now what happened was that when she entered into a master's of social work program because she had entered with a BSW it removed the first year of coursework that she had to do. So instead of two full years of coursework, she had to do one plus whatever practicum or internship she had to do. See, so that's a very efficient way. And I didn't think about this before when I was younger, but now I do is that for those of you going on to take university classes and getting different degrees and all that, 
try to be as efficient as possible with every choice you make, right? Because that's a f big financial commitment and investment. You don't want to just randomly take classes because you don't know what else to take, right? Even if you're at the community college level and you're not spending that much money on your tuition, you want to be as efficient as possible to make the wisest decision for every single class you take, right? Not so much for the appearances on your transcript, but just financially speaking, you want to be as focused as possible. You don't want to just sort of wander around for three to four years not without any focus, and then you end up racking up student loan debt that you have to pay off later. Uh, did you hear the thunder? That was really well-timed, okay? So, <laughs> so, you know, so I was really making a good point if it's followed by thunder. All right, so um, in any case, uh, let's see. Okay, so if you do want to become a community college instructor, you can get your foot in the door with 18 credit hours. That depends on the state you're in, but in the state of Texas and many community colleges, that's what I've seen. And again, do a little research. They may have updated that. Maybe they want you to finish your master's. But if you have 18 credit hours of master's level psychology classes that you've taken yourself, then that, that's the minimum requirement to allow you, usually as a part-time instructor, as an adjunct, to teach an intro to psych class. Okay? And there's probably an expectation that you should finish your degree, but depending on the location, wherever it's possible, you can continue teaching with that minimum requirement. Again, that depends on the school. All right, so again, a master's degree in psychology can be very much worthwhile, especially in this clinical area, whether, and then you get a, uh, a licensed license for counseling, uh, do marriage family therapy, or license in social work, okay? And my wife used to work as a medical social worker within MD Anderson Cancer Center. So she worked with the families of, and, and helped support the families and patients who go to that hospital whether with uh, they need financial help assistance, housing assistance, right? Social workers are experts in community resources, right? So if you're ever wondering, if you have a friend in need or yourself and you're wondering, well, what, what resources are out there in my community, find a social worker in that community and you'll definitely get a lot of answers, okay? All right, so... This is the big question um, when I was in that committee interviewing incoming doctoral students and they already had a master's degree. The big question was, you already have a master's degree, you can be out there, you're already out there doing clinical work, counseling and therapy. Why do you need a PhD? And, and you know, the truth was that most people did not know how to answer that, right? You would think they would know it's a big commitment of time time and uh, money to go to get a doctor degree but they really did not know you really should know obviously why you're getting that doctorate degree not just because it looks good on a name plate or your business card to have doctor behind your name you can't just do it for that reason so it could be that you want to become a hospital or university administrator that requires a doctor degree right or you want to be a researcher at a university, which requires a PhD, right? Whereas in community college, um, a, a master's degree is sufficient. Although there are many PhDs like myself who work in community colleges as well. All right, so you have to really know what is the reason for getting this degree, right? 
whether you're coming to this university because they have a specialty in this particular kind of counseling and therapy and you want more training in that you know that's a very legitimate reason right so you just have to come up with a good reason for why uh, and you have to be open to learning open to training you don't want to go into a program during an interview and tell them that oh, I'm really stuck on this way of thinking and this field of psychology you know then then it's from the faculty's point of view is like well why are you here if you're not open to learning other methods right of how to do counseling or therapy now there are two different umbrellas here that i mentioned earlier is that there's clinical psychology and there's counseling psychology they're not interchangeable words they're actually different academic departments okay and I can tell you that I had many friends who went to clinical psychology when I was a social psych grad student, right? I, myself, I'm a counseling psychology doctor degreed person. So I cannot really tell you whether one is better or not. Um, but there's also a different kind of doctor degree that's out there now called, well, it's been out for quite a while, called a PsyD, P-S-Y, and then D, okay, instead of Ph-D. This is a doctorate of psychology this is very clinically focused, right? So technically a PhD in any field is considered a research degree. Everyone getting a PhD has to do a significant amount of research, which includes a dissertation research project or paper. So the PsyD was created so that those who are not really interested in becoming a faculty member who's focused on research can focus more on their clinical skills so that a research dissertation is optional in those programs, I believe. Uh, I think that's still correct. Okay, If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but that, that's the general differentiation between those two. So those of you who maybe really want to be a clinician, be a therapist, and want to get this, and then look into a PsyD program, right, and then find out whether there's a research requirement because Sometimes, and I'm including myself, the research requirement can get students hung up, can delay their graduation. And I was stuck in this stage of life called ABD, which is called all but dissertation, meaning that I've, I've finished all my course requirements, I've finished all my uh, clinical requirements in terms of getting my hours and, and clinical training, so I really could be done if it weren't for not finishing in defending the dissertation, right? That's called ABD. And I've met many brilliant people out there who are faculty in different places, but they don't have the PhD behind their name because they technically didn't finish, right? So they're technically ABD. ABD is not a formally recognized degree, okay? It just means that you're just one, you're a paper away from getting your credentials. And I'll do a separate podcast for those of you who may be ABD, or maybe you're stuck with your thesis and not able to finish your master's degree. Whichever point you're at, uh, I believe I can help you. I'm sort of a, I see myself as an expert on the state of ABD hood, okay? All right, so I'm not just trying to scare people away from that, okay? I have many, many friends who finished their PhD, no problem, wrote up the dissertation, right? And I'll talk more about that whole process but it ends up being anticlimactic anyway, okay? We make it into a much bigger deal than it really is. And uh, for most people, they really should finish it on time. But for many people, it could hinder them 
right? And it really affects your self-esteem when your degree is not finished and you invested so much time and money into it, all right? Okay, so just to summarize briefly, you want to know why you're getting a PhD. You're in clinical counseling. The training is fairly similar. You have to finish with a one-year internship that uh, most hospitals and counseling centers will recruit either clinical or counseling. So, so there's really no difference there. It's a paid internship. It's, there's a national selection process back in the day. I haven't done the research to find out how it's done nowadays, but back in my time, there was a national selection day, kind of like the MBA draft, right? So let's say you put out five applications. You're not really sure. They can't tell you ahead of time if you're chosen. Each hospital or university counseling center or clinic that offers an internship will notify students at a certain time, at a certain day. So you sit by your phone back in the day, okay, sit, you're sitting by your phone, and you're waiting for that phone to ring, and you're telling all your relatives not to call you during that time, because you're expecting that phone, phone to ring at 9 a.m. Central Time or whatever, okay, and uh, so in your mind, and, and there's a little strategy involved, because you have more than one offer, right, and your, your top choice is really the second school or hospital that called you, you have to play this little dance, and you can put one on hold, accept the second call, then call back the first one and reject, right? This is this whole thing you got to do. And luckily, the I only got one offer. It was the Los Angeles VA downtown uh, outpatient clinic. There were three slots. I was number four on their list. But one of the top three rejected their offer and took another offer, so I'll, I moved up. And... Out of over, what, 100 to 200 applicants, I got the fourth slot, so that's pretty good. And uh, so I'll, I'll talk about that later in terms of interviews and all that. That's not really part of this podcast, but I was happy to get that. And that internship experience was wonderful, okay? And uh, it's hard for me to talk about whether or not I want to focus on these very specific experiences. But, but basically, if you're looking for any kind of internship, in any major, you want to find out if you if they're really focused on training and teaching. Because in my experience, there are others who flat out said that, you know, we're overwhelmed here. We need people to come in and know how to do these psychological tests for our clinic. So they wanted cheap labor. I mean, they needed assistance. They weren't there to really train and teach. So then I would reject them before they even rejected me. Okay, so when you go into an internship, make sure that they're going to serve you in some way. What's in it for me? You do have to think that way. All right. Now, during graduate school, you have to support yourself, right? Now, if you're in a clinical program under the School of Psychology, again, that big umbrella, then that department is going to have a lot of undergraduate psychology courses, right? Well, they don't have enough professors to go around teaching them. So graduate students would teach those courses. I was in my what, early to mid-20s. I was a social psych PhD uh, candidate. And I was teaching undergraduate social psych class uh, at the University of Houston with very, very little life experience, mind you, okay, or even teaching experience. But I was doing that for a few years. You can be a teaching assistant, right? So you help grade papers, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there are some professors that have huge lecture halls of 500 students, and they would have maybe seven or eight teaching assistants. And whether you're a teaching assistant or a teaching fellow, a teaching fellow is a, a graduate student who would actually teach a class, then um, 
you get paid the same, right? It's part of your financial aid. Uh, it's like a stipend. It's basically like a work on campus job kind of thing, right? So it's a way of helping to fund uh, graduate students uh, instead of just giving them cash, you know, like a scholarship. Yeah, so we had to earn it, right? So I had that experience. Then when I switched to the counseling psych program, they didn't have undergraduate counseling classes, so there was no really no teaching going on. So I realized that most of the graduate students in a counseling psych program were doing research, right? Uh, assisting faculty doing their research. And I ended up in Houston's great because even though this may not be the most wonderful city to live in, I'm sorry, okay, this is my opinion, okay, compared to a lot of places nature-wise, right, in terms of it's fine, okay, the people are great, okay, and I enjoyed Houston, and I love the Rockets. <laughs> in any case, there was the largest medical center in the U.S. is there. So there's plenty of job listings looking for graduate students to help with, say, data entry, right? And I got a job at the UT School of Public Health, University of Texas School of Public Health, doing data management, right? Worked in a little office, worked for a researcher. Then I got another job at MD Anderson Cancer Center in their um, psychological research wing, different from the hospital cancer side, but they had a smoking cessation department to help people quit smoking so we would use to put out ads and people hear them on the radio if you're trying to quit smoking you can attend our free program you know uh, basically be a, a subject in the study to help people quit smoking and that's what we did so I was a t research fellow there during your PhD years you want to start your dissertation paper as soon as possible so it's helpful to do that from your research jobs, okay? And I didn't quite take advantage of that. I kind of got stuck in that process, but a lot of people do that. So I'm working here. I might as well get permission to collect data as well, have my job supervisor be part of my dissertation committee as well as my other faculty members, right? So you kill a lot of birds with the same stone. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a, okay. All right, so... Um, Again, um, should you, let's go back to the title. Is a graduate degree in psychology worth it? I would say, heck yeah, okay? When I was at the University of Houston, I taught a night class and it was a master's level course. I asked my students, so um, you're getting your master's degree. Anybody have thoughts about getting a PhD? And some students actually said that, well, a lot of us were discouraged um, from other full-time professors here, uh, they basically told them, and, and most of these were minority and also women, that, that they were told by faculty that they're basically not good enough, that PhD programs take the cream of the crop, and so don't bother, right? And so hearing that from these students really pissed me off, right? Because I'm not sure why a professor would have that mindset. Maybe they had the sour experience um, of getting into graduate school or had a bad graduate school experience. But to me, if anyone is motivated enough and understands why they want to earn a PhD in psychology and understand the sacrifice that's involved in doing so, should by all means try, right? Um, I would encourage them to do it. But so if I were to mention any kind of negative experiences about 
getting a doctorate degree is not to discourage anyone. It's just to lay out the reality that it is hard. Okay, uh, When we started, the department chair or the head of the department, when I entered into the counseling psychology program, she he met the 12 of us. There were only 12 of us who got into this class a particular year. And he gave us this nice welcoming speech, and he also said that, okay, some of you will experience death in the family. Some of you will experience um, uh, divorce if you're married. And some, you know, he just went down the list of sort of negative life events. And the reason he said so is because, just like a pandemic, graduate school will just put an extra stress on everything that's going on in your life, your relationships, your family, your finances, you know, so anything that was normally a responsibility that has a certain amount of stress with it, being in graduate school would just increase that. Now, many of you who are getting your associate's degree or bachelor's degree are probably already feeling that, right? You're juggling so many things, work, family, school. So it's it's more of the same, really, uh, when you're going to graduate school. So you definitely want to have a spouse or a life partner or whoever that is, a family member that really understands and and they may not because you might be the first generation in your family's history to go to graduate school or even go to college. So the the people around you may not understand how hard it is, right? Even though you try to explain it, they just think, well, it's just school. What's the big deal, right? Um, so plan it out financially. Student loan debt can be okay if it's not overboard, right? If you absolutely need it. But make sure you only take it when you absolutely need it because it is something you have to pay back. Okay, um, so you want to you want to be able to do that. You want to be able to forecast that this is going to be a bit tough. There's going to be a lot of years of stress. How will you manage financially, emotionally? Right? Um, there, there's going to be some cutbacks yeah, unless you're independently wealthy or your family's independently wealthy. It's not going to be easy. But it is very much worth it uh, at the end. Um, now, just because you wake up one day after defending your dissertation, you're not any smarter than you were the previous day when you haven't earned your PhD yet. You're still the same person with the same amount of information and, and all that in your brain. But there's a sense of accomplishment and a sense of uh, professional respect you will earn by having those credentials. Okay? All right, let's see what else can I talk about. Um, yes, so in clinical and counseling, you'll have to do that one-year internship that I mentioned that where you get that phone call at a specific day. And again, I'm not sure how they do it these days, but that, that's how it was done back in the day. And that 12-month that internship was really life-changing for me. First of all, it was in the Veterans Affairs System, so I'm working with combat veterans mostly. And it was really a, a an emotional, uh, the most emotional year I've ever had because I'm working with individuals who've been through life and death situations, witnessed a lot of trauma, and and also death around them, and yet are, you know, doing their best to to try to live a normal life. So. With the L.A. Los Angeles Outpatient Clinic, we work with people who are homeless, substance abuse addiction, um, people with psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, 
the older set working with Alzheimer's and other dementias, um, worked in a stress management clinic. It was really the most well-rounded learning environment I've, I've had, and I really cherish that. So when I was finished there, that's what an internship is designed to, is to for them to invest a year of their time to train you, and then if you want, if you desire it, you take a job there. So that door was there for me. But going back to my ABD status, I wasn't, I didn't graduate yet. I didn't feel comfortable taking a job. And, and plus, I, I'm not sure if I could have until I finished my degree, right? And so I'm going to do a separate podcast about being ABD and how that holds, holds you back and uh, how to get over that, that hill so that all the doors would open. So basically, once the degree is finished, feel a sense of relief all these doors and opportunities open up because you got the golden ticket you got the ticket that allows you to go through these doors to to audition for these jobs right and so yeah it's totally worth it it's very rewarding to be a counselor to be a therapist to be a psychologist is extremely rewarding um, as an academic the reason I chose this route was because I thought well I can spread the word about psychology and the importance of it and break down all these myths and educate people. 30 students, 38 students at a time in one class. So in one year, I'm affecting hundreds of people, right? Um, and hopefully in a positive way. Whereas as a clinician, I'm working with someone one-on-one. -on -one. I may have maybe four or five patients at one time. I'm working with a very small group in group therapy. Yes, I think that would be very rewarding if I chose that route. But I think both routes are great. I'm affecting hundreds of people, educating them about the field I love. Or I could be helping someone in a more in-depth way directly, person to person or working with a couple right, or family. Okay, I think that's about it. So hopefully that gave you a rough idea of the process of going through graduate school if I missed anything, if there's anything else you would like me to talk about, let's say what to do during an interview or any other details about your school experience, uh, how to get a letter of recommendation, you know, that kind of thing, any kind of specific part of this whole process, just let me know. And I'm really, really grateful that people who are listening who are not my students directly felt comfortable enough to reach out to me on Twitter and to ask me questions. So I thought that was really cool. All right, until the next podcast, have a good one. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow me on anchor.fm slash jackbteaching. That's Jack, the letter B, and the word teaching. And you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is also at Jack B. Teaching. Thank you.